I was no different from any other kid, only in Mobile. I was a nigger kid. Satchel Page entered the world as Leroy Robert Page. He was delivered at home into the hands of a midwife, which was more help than most poor families could afford in 1906 in Mobile, Alabama. His mother, Lula, was a washerwoman who already spent her nights worrying how to feed and sustain the four daughters and two sons who had come before. Five more would follow. Leroy's father, John, alternated between the luxuriant lilies in the gardens he tended uptown and the corner stoops on which he liked to loiter, rarely making time to care for his expanding brood. With skin the shade of chestnut and a birthplace in the heartland of the former confederacy, the newborn's prospects looked woeful. They were about to get worse. The hurricane that battered Mobile Bay just two months after Leroy's birth started with two days of torrential rains carried in on the back of a driving northeast wind. By the next morning, ten-foot-high surges had dispatched oyster and fishing vessels to the bottom of the sea. Tornado-like squalls ripped from their roots southern pines, blew tin roofs off Greek revival homes, and made it look as if birds were flying backward. At historic Christ Church, only the choir loft was left standing. The lucky escaped by fleeing to third-floor attics or climbing tall trees. A hundred and fifty others were consigned to watery graves. One area hit especially hard was the Negro slum known as Down the Bay, where the pages lived. Their home was a four-room shack called a shotgun, because a shot fired through the front door would exit straight out the back. That is the path stormwaters took when they burst through down the bay's alleys on the way to more fashionable quarters. Rental units like the pages were ramshackle and fragile, with no flood walls to protect them from the nearby sea and no electricity to ease their recovery. The page cottage remained standing, but the thin mattresses the children shared and their few furnishings needed airing out. That cleanup would have to wait. Lula's white employers insisted she be at their homes early the next morning to mop up the storm damage. The kids would wait, too, the way they did every day when Mama headed to work, with the older ones watching over baby Leroy and the rest of the young ones. Leroy's world was being reshaped in another way that would mark him even more profoundly. Mobile, historically, was a center of the slave trade and a destination for the last slave ship to America but Alabama's oldest city was also home to more than a thousand blacks who bought or were granted their freedom in the antebellum era. That paradox was consistent with the coastal city's push toward the conservative state of which it was part, and its pull to a more tolerant world beyond its shores. For more than 200 years, Mobile had welcomed outsiders, Irish Catholics fleeing the famine, Jewish merchants, Yankees and English, along with legions of Creoles, the free offspring of French or Spanish fathers and chattel mothers, and they in turn challenged inbred thinking on everything from politics to race. The result, during the Reconstruction period, was a blurring of color lines in ways unthinkable in Montgomery, Selma, and most of the rest of Alabama. Jim Crow, the system of segregation named after a cowering slave in an 1820s minstrel show, was there in Mobile. But so was Booker T. Washington's gospel of black self-help. The races were separated on trolleys and in other public settings, 
but the separation was done by tradition more than law. Blacks not only could vote for office holders, a few even held political office. Paternalism, more than meanness, defined how whites treated Mobile's 18,000 black citizens. Unfortunately for Leroy, that live-and-let-live mindset had begun fraying by the turn of the century, and it unraveled entirely the very season of his birth. The reforms of Reconstruction were collapsing across the South, as whites who wielded power in the fallen Confederacy began to reinvent the realm and tear down Negroes' new freedoms. The brief post-war honeymoon of racial coexistence survived longer in Mobile than in most of the South, but the backlash finally came there, too. An ordinance mandated separate seating on streetcars. Blacks were barred from most restaurants, cemeteries, saloons, hotels, and brothels. Whites and blacks were not allowed to attend the same school, marry one another, or live together and in the wake of the devastating September hurricane, Mobile's most influential newspaper stirred up reader resentment with its account of Negroes looting the homes of dead Caucasians and mutilating their bodies. The rising tensions turned violent on October 6, 1906, when two black men accused in separate rapes of young white girls were being transported by train back to Mobile from protective custody in Birmingham. Forty-five vigilantes with masks and rifles boarded the train, took custody of the accused, and hanged them from a tree in the community of Plateau, just north of Mobile. As word of the killing spread, 3,000 spectators, many arriving by streetcar, paraded by the black men's limp bodies. Some snapped photographs. Others stole bits of the prisoners' garments and cut souvenir segments from their noose. The double lynching ushered in four years of racist mobocracy in Mobile County. In 1907, Moses Dorsett, a Negro accused of raping an elderly white woman, was seized by a white mob and strung up 50 yards from the 1906 gallows. Two years later, masked men snatched from the county jail a black inmate charged with killing a sheriff's deputy, hanging the wounded man from an oak tree across from Mobile's oldest church. This lynching stripped away any pretense that mob actions were confined to rural areas or resisted by law enforcers. It happened in the heart of the city, two blocks from the main police station, and investigators later established that the jail had been left unlocked. Lest anyone doubt their meaning, the lynchers left behind notes. Negroes must be taught that death will always follow attacks on white women, one warned while another advised, there are plenty of ropes and trees left. <laughs>